welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. You hear it in the loose talk about health care, about the wonders of medicine, about how we're living longer, and about the advances of our doctors. The fact is we are mostly still in the dark ages. The standard treatment for cancer today, poisoning the body, is a little like how we once saw leaching. As for diagnostics, a huge percentage of today's sickest patients go through a multi-year odyssey just to discover what's wrong with them. And that's if they're in world-class medical facilities. But all of this is changing. We're on the cusp of the brave new world of what some call genomic medicine, a time when treatment will be personalized, when the brutality of some treatments will be vastly refined, and when medicine really will be worthy of the 21st century and all the highfalutin rhetoric we hear. Nowhere is this more clear than in the story that my guests, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists Mark Johnson and Kathleen Gallagher tell in One in a Billion, the story of Nick Volker and the dawn of genomic medicine. Mark Johnson is a health and science reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. He was a member of the Sentinel team that won the Pulitzer Prize for its extraordinary reporting on the Nick Volker story. Kathleen Gallagher is a business reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and she was also a member of the Journal Sentinel team that won the Pulitzer Prize. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Johnson and Kathleen Gallagher here to talk about their new book, One in a Billion, The Story of Nick Volker and the Dawn of Genomic Medicine. Kathleen, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Jeff. It's great to have you here. First of all, tell us how you came to Nick Volker's story. He was uh, the sick two-year-old boy in a hospital uh, there in Milwaukee. How did you come to the story? Well, Jeff, uh, I'm a business reporter, and I talk to people a lot. And, you know, as in the course of talking to people, someone said to me, hey, and they're doing all this great stuff over at Children's Hospital. They're doing this, they're doing that. They sequenced the genes of a boy, and they're doing, and went on. And I, you know, I got off the phone thinking, I don't know if that was a tip or if that was a mistake, a slip-up. And I ran over to Mark and said, I, I think they sequenced all the genes of a boy at Children's Hospital, and that seems unusual to me. And Mark, when you heard that, you, know, you had covered medicine. You, you knew a little bit about this. Yeah, um, I, I spent more time working on stem cells than on DNA, but it didn't take very long to, to realize that um, there were no reports of this having been done before. At the time that um, uh, Kathleen uh, got the tip, uh, there was basically nothing out there. And one of the very good signs that we had was that when we called the hospital to start checking into the story, um, all these public relations people, none of them had... Uh, had heard anything about this. It had completely flown under the radar. Um, that's usually a good thing. Um, no one had had time to um, shape the story or, um, you know, control it. And in fact, it was uh, it was at a very exciting point. No one knew how this story was going to turn out. Um, at the time that we joined it, the doctors had uh, read Nick's genetic code, and they'd found the mutation that they thought was responsible for his illness, um, but they had they weren't sure they could cure his disease. It was completely uncertain at that point. Kathleen, talk a little bit about what the disease was. This was a very sick two-year-old boy. Yeah, well, it, it's actually pretty horrible to hear about. Um, if anyone's eating breakfast, they might want to take a break. <laughs> um, the, the, when he was two years old, um, he, they, the family was at a water park, and Nick's mom noticed an abscess on his bottom. 
and didn't think anything of it, uh, you know, just a little bump. And uh, through a series of doctor's appointments, you know, they realized this, this abscess didn't go away and actually turned into what they call a fistula, a hole. And he got more and more of these fistulas to the point where he was getting holes in his stomach and stool would leak out and no one could, no one could figure out why this was happening. It was a sublimely cruel illness, too, because one of the, the characteristics of it was that Nick was extremely underweight. He was in the third percentile uh, for his weight, so he's very malnourished. But when he ate, that's when he would get these holes in his intestine. So it was like the disease punished him for not eating and punished him for eating. He really he couldn't win. One of the things that you point out in the book is that it is not that unusual among a pretty significant percentage of of the population that goes to doctors and goes in for medical treatment for them not to really be able to immediately diagnose what's wrong. Mark? No, this this is one of the things that we were um, surprised to find out, especially I was uh, being a health reporter. Um, and I, I have a son as well, so I've been to the doctor a good many times with him, and you always go there expecting that doctors are going to know what's wrong. Well, about 25 to 30 million Americans uh, have what are called rare diseases, very, very rare diseases, and 30% of those, it takes five years or longer to actually diagnose them and figure out what the disease is. So that means five years of going from one hospital to another, from doctor to doctor, test to test, trying to figure out what's wrong with your child. Um, that's, uh, that's a very frustrating uh, thing, and that's what the, uh, the Volcker family had been through with Nick um, before they actually used this new technology. And Kathleen, talk a little bit about the decisions that went into doing this sequencing with this young boy and and how the doctors and how the the team came to decide this was really the only course of action well they they initially thought that uh, Nick might have Crohn's disease and they tried to treat it but they realized that what he, what was happening to him wasn't acting like Crohn's disease and wasn't responding to what sorry wasn't responding to the treatment of Crohn's so they went through this series of attempts to figure it out, a diagnostic odyssey, if you will, and uh, kept coming up empty. So um, Amy Lynn, Nick's mom, is a real like fighter for her kid, someone who grew up in a medical family and knew that you know, you can, you can have an influence on treatment and she would hire and fire doctors and she, she landed on one doctor, his name is Alan Mayer, um, and, and kind of targeted him and said, I want him to be next doctor. Well, she got him. She finally convinced him to be next doctor and it turned out that he had a genetics background and he looked at this and said, you know, it's gotta be something rare and something genetic and, knew that there was another guy, the guy who ran the genetic center at Medical College of Wisconsin, who was planning to bring sequencing into the clinic probably five years from when this was all going on. And and he made a plea to that guy. And Mark, maybe you want to talk about the plea that Alan Mayer made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sent out a, uh email basically um, telling the, the director, whose name was Howard Jacob, and he knew this this guy from, uh, they'd both been at Harvard, though, um, at different times, and he sent out this plea saying, 
you know, here's the situation with this with this child. Um, you've always wanted to um, take uh, the human genome into the hospital, into medicine, um, you know, beyond the research realm. Here's a chance to do it. And one of the very smart things that he did was he um, provided a link so that um, this director, Howard Jacob, could uh, look at the CaringBridge page that the mother uh, had kept. And the mother's CaringBridge page, it, it, it actually it went to like 500 pages. It was a, a long chronicle of basically two and a half years of, of futility and, and um, nights when they thought Nick was going to die. I mean, she'd been told at least a dozen times that he wouldn't make it. Um, and I think that this moved... Um, Howard Jacob very much. He he was a, he's a parent. He has two uh, kids of his own, and you know, like most people, he sort of put her, himself into her position. Um, you know, Nick at that point had been into surgery. Um, I believe it was over a hundred times, and uh, you know, he tried to imagine what it would be like to to have your kid wheeled into you know the operating room where you can't help. You know, and then. Imagine having that happen a hundred times. One of the things that, that is particularly remarkable about this story, and, and you talk about Nick's mom and, and her strength and her fighting, is that perhaps if she hadn't found Alan Mayer, if she hadn't been able to convince him to be Nick's doctor, this story may have taken an entirely different course. I, I, think, that's, I think that's true. Um, he had been through a number of doctors, and... The problem was that uh, until this point, the method for dealing with uh, rare diseases that, you know, when they thought that they were genetic was that you'd test single genes. You'd test this gene, you know, that, that looked like a likely suspect, and then if either you'd find out that it was the cause or you would find out that it wasn't and you had to move on to another gene. And this was a very inexact way of, um, of doing things. It was a very slow, cumbersome, and very expensive way to do things. And I think that if it weren't for Alan Mayer and for uh, Howard Jacob sort of connecting with each other, I think that doctors probably would have reached the point of futility where they were out of uh, things to test. They'd tested all these different genes and they'd done a number of different tests on his immune system and nothing had had given them an answer. I, w I just wanted to say something about the mom. Um, you know, when we first met her, it took us a while to meet Amy Lynn because, you know, we had to go through the hospital. We, we didn't know who this kid was. And uh, we didn't know at the time that they kept putting us off. And it turned out Nick was having some complications. But finally, they set up a meeting for us at the Ronald McDonald House near, near Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. And you know, you wonder, how is this going to go? I, this is a mom who's dealing with these horrible things, and, you know, she's gonna, is she going to be intelligent? Is she going to be easy to talk to? Is, is she going to be all stressed out and snap at us? And we walked in, and she is this beautiful woman who, who just um, was so graceful about allowing us. I, we have, for the last six years, um, badgered this family and particularly Amy Lynn and and she's been so graceful and so 
cool under pressure. There, I remember one day Nick was finally getting out of the hospital, and we showed up. It was me, Mark, a photographer, and a videographer. And she's packing up. You know, her kid's been there for months, and we're all over her. And she had one moment where she looked and said, "You know, I don't. I'm going to kill you guys," or you know, said something. But, <laughs> but she went with us, and she throughout this she did that, and the the way she handled this whole thing and you know she'd research on the internet and she'd uh talk to doctors and you know it was always her kind of against the medical system and she always kind of pulled herself together you know put her business suit on or her nice clothes you know did her hair and makeup and walked in and held meetings with all of them she's just an amazing person and we felt so lucky that she was the person we we encountered that day at, at uh, the Ronald McDonald House. And Mark, talk a little bit about the process that they undertook, this complete sequencing of Nick's genes. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure listeners have probably heard of the Human Genome Project. And so what we're talking about here is um, the Human Genome Project had cost about $3 billion, and um, this is, it was completed in 2003. And this basically came up with the complete blueprint of being of a human being the code that's contained in our 21,000 or so genes and this code spells out our traits whether we have brown eyes or blue blonde hair or red um, whether we're predisposed to uh, heart disease or many many different types of issues and when we talk so when we talk about sequencing Nick what we're talking about is reading this code and the entire code is spelled out in uh, a list of four letters, uh, T, A, G, and C. Each of those letters stands for a different chemical base. And so it's the order of those bases that is our code, but it's a very, very long order. Uh, it, it stretches for 3.2 billion pairs of bases. And so that's what we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about actually sequencing NIC. So what, what happened was that... Um, the team that looked at, at Nick, um, they were very smart about the way they did this. And uh, first, because it would have cost probably about $2 million to sequence his entire genome, they sequenced a part of his genome. It was a part that's on each of the genes. Um, each of the genes has a part that codes for proteins. It's like a recipe for making a protein. And by targeting just that part, the protein-making part, um, you cut your work, um, it, it, it's down to about 1.5% of the entire genome. So it was a much more achievable cost. I think it ended up costing in the neighborhood of $100,000. Now, still doing that, they came up with, um, after sequencing Nick, they came up with over 16,000 variations in his code, differences from what's considered normal. And so this is, this is a difficult problem. How do you find the right one? And in a lot of ways, they were, uh, they were very smart about how they did this. They, they assumed that um, because his illness had never showed up in um, the medical literature, that the problem in his code would be something that had never been seen before. So they, they figured we're looking for a mutation that has not come up before. The other assumption that they made was that this has to be a mutation that makes a drastic change. And basically, they went through different rounds of screening um, 
all these 16,000 variations. They got it down to 32 and then to somewhere around 10 or 12, um, to 8, and finally to 2. And um, basically what, what happened was that during the time that they'd been doing all this, um, a paper had been written in one of the medical journals that actually implicated one of the genes they were looking at and said it was involved in inflammatory bowel disease, which is a disease somewhat like what was, uh, was happening to Nick. In fact, a lot like what was happening to Nick. And as soon as they came across this paper, it was just a, a kind of tremendous luck of timing. When they saw this paper, I think they, had, they just felt like this has got to be the gene. Um, and it turned out that, uh, that they were right. It was something that had not been seen before. Um, not only not in humans, they'd never, they'd never seen this mutation, but they'd never seen it in animals either. And Kathleen, how long did this process that Mark was just describing, how long did it take? Well, they, they started in the summer, and by about the holidays, they had whittled it down and figured it out. One of the real interesting things that we explore in the book is kind of how this all, you know, th this had never happened before, so there were no procedures set up. There was no um, information about how to tell the family, uh, you know, there were all kinds of other things they could have found. Did they tell that stuff to the family? You know, how did they tell the family about the mutation? It could affect not only their nuclear family, but a lot of other family members. You know, at that point, Amy Lynn and her husband, Sean, they just signed the papers. They just said, we're going to do it because our kid's going to die if we don't try this. But as they progressed through it, you know, once they had this um, information from the sequencing, um, there were a lot of questions they had to deal with that, you know, the new era of genomic medicine mm -hmm. will force many people to deal with. And one of the most um, uh, emotional questions they had to deal with was, um, Amy Lynn had to deal with the idea that this mutation came from her, you know, the, 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 her son who she was trying to help through this horrible experience, she had actually put him into this horrible experience. It was her gene. And what was the cost of all of this, Kathleen? Um, you know, that we asked that so many times, so many different <laughs> ways. <laughs> um, we kind of came to an answer that it was probably around $75,000. But, you know, did that include, um, did that include the, the work that all the scientists were doing all the time? Uh, uh, Roche, uh, the big company Roche, um, donated some sequencing, you know, so that they, they helped the medical college. They, you have to do multiple rounds of sequencing to really make sure you are getting the right information. Was that included in around 75000 probably? <laughs> Mark, was there a sense among the doctors and the family and, and everybody involved in this process that in, in many ways Nick was kind of patient zero in this brave new world of sequencing and genomic medicine? I, I think so. And one of the interesting things that um, we came across in, in working on the book was that uh, science views cases like this in a, in a somewhat different way. Um, when the Medical College of Wisconsin and Children's Hospital decided to sequence Nick, um, they had, the scientists anyway, had a different idea of what success was. For most of them, um, success would be using um, this technique, actually getting back an accurate picture of Nick's 
of mixed genes and being able to tell you know, a few things from it. Um, it would be even greater success if they were actually able to find out the problem, you know, exactly what was causing the problem with this disease. But you can write a, a, a paper for a medical journal um, in which you're able to use all this equipment and the patient dies. And I think what, you know, for the family, obviously, uh, success had a very different definition. I mean, if they went through this whole process and Nick, uh, they discovered that Nick's mutation is something they can't fix, that's failure for them. And I think as time went on, and very, very quickly, actually, um, the doctors realized that um, it wouldn't be enough just to have success on scientific terms. They would have to have, you know, they would actually have to save this child for it to be a real, you know, complete uh-huh. success. Kathleen, talk a little bit about the course of treatment. Once this was determined which genes it was when it was narrowed down to the two, talk about the way a course of treatment evolved. You know, if you don't mind, I wanted to go back to one sure. other thing first. Just as Mark was talking, I thought of it. The um, One of the striking things about this story was that there are a lot of big sequencing centers around the country. Any of them could have done this and probably could have done it faster. One of the real things about this story was that this was a little uh, medical school, you know, a research facility, but a little medical school that wasn't on the map in the sequencing world to a great extent. Howard Jacob had worked with, he had been part of the team that sequenced the rat genome, but no one expected these people to be the people who brought this to the clinic first. And that was kind of the freedom and the pressure that these people were dealing with. They weren't, you know, they weren't people anyone thought would ever do this. And here they were, you know, kind of knowing that we might be first. And it added a whole flavor to this story of kind of how they sorted that all out and, and proceeded. Um, regarding uh, the treatment, I think Mark would be better to talk about that. Mark, <laughs> oh, sure. Um, so once they discovered, one of the fascinating things about what they what they discovered was that uh, all of Nick's problems stemmed from a single wrong letter. We talked about the C A G and T, and how they are stretched for 3.2 billion pairs. Well, Nick had one difference, one almost like you can think of it like a typo. Um, at a place where all other humans have TGT, Nick had TAT. It was like having one wrong letter in the 55 million word Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, fortunately for them, this one wrong letter was actually very telling. Because of it, uh, Nick made a different, uh, made too little of a, a very important protein. And what this protein does is it stops cells from dying, and it stops our immune system from attacking our intestines when we eat food. Our immune system is there to protect us, but it, um, it senses you know, uh, things that come from outside the body. And so when we eat food, um, there's a system uh, that prevents our intestines from going nuts. And in this case, um, they discovered that... Uh, that Nick not only had this rare disease that he that was he was the only person that had it, but he also had this second disease called XLP, and this is also very rare. It only happens to about a dozen or so people in the world. The cure for that disease is a bone marrow transplant, and it just so happened 
that that cure also was the cure uh, for uh, for the first disease, or they hoped it would be. Basically, they gave him a brand new immune system, so his immune system wouldn't be attacking his intestines. And in the years since he got his treatment, he has not had a recurrence of the disease. Now, they did the, the bone marrow transplant, but they also did this cord blood transplant, essentially. Talk about that. Well, that's that. actually what it was. Um, I, I misspoke when I said basically a cord blood transplant and a bone marrow transplant are pretty much the same thing. The only difference is that the cord blood, uh, it comes from an umbilical cord. Uh, so, so Jeff, here's one of the neat things about it. If Nick were ever to commit a crime when he was older, if he left a strand of hair at the crime scene, that would be his DNA. But if he left a drop of blood, that would be the DNA of his donor. <laughs> Pretty mind-blowing, eh? It's, it really is. It really speaks to how far this has come. Talk a little bit about, uh, you, you mentioned briefly how Nick's doing today, that there hasn't been a recurrence, Kathleen. Um, so there hasn't been a recurrence. Nick has other issues. You know, he mm-hmm. spent so long in the hospital. He was diagnosed with epilepsy, which they think might be a side effect of the transplant. He has, interestingly enough, PTSD. Um, he's been doing therapy that, for that. His mom uh, recently told us that he was able to go and walk through the surgical suites for the first time without freaking out. His mom actually um, has become so committed to trying to help people with rare diseases and people on these diagnostic odysseys and people dealing with sequencing. She's started a foundation called the Nick Volker One in a Billion Foundation where she's trying to educate people about you know, so the the great things that happen. They're so happy he's alive. And, you know, some of the problems you can encounter from all the treatment and, and the years in the hospital. Mark, coming back to the point which was, uh, you know, amusing thinking about, you know, if he committed a crime in the future, mm-hmm. what are the risks in terms of the DNA and the genetic sequence that comes with from the transplant that he had? That brings with it a whole new set of potential diseases down the road and weaknesses down the road. Well, the, the transplant actually, and a lot of people don't realize this about bone marrow or cord blood transplants, it could actually have killed him. We, um, we actually have come to think of these things as pretty routine, almost like uh, you know giving birth. But what they have to do to do a transplant is actually fairly dangerous. They have mm-hmm. to completely obliterate your existing immune system. And they do it um, by using very powerful chemotherapy drugs. Um, and that means that th- there's a period of time um, for a day or two or three where uh, the recipient of the, the bone marrow or cord blood basically has no immune system and you know is vulnerable to any kind of you know infection or illness. Um, and the period when when Nick got his um, transplant was very fraught with with problems. He he got um, one after another, different kinds of viruses. Um, he he had the risk of what they call um, graft versus host disease. That's um, that's where the the um, new blood that you, the new immune system that you have uh, recognizes the uh, existing um, uh, parts of the body and it, and basically attacks them. It, where it's basically like having two neighbors that are incompatible with each other. 
Um, and that, that's a that's a very real risk, and it kills some people that uh, that get these transplants. Um, in Nick's case, it took about I think it was about a hundred days or so um, before they felt like he was well enough to go home. Um, and even then, there were um, there were doctors who thought, you know, we better really wait until two years out, two years after his transplant, before we, you know, say everything's clear. Um, and the, re- the thinking behind that was that it had taken two years with his old immune system before the problem with the holes began. It's interesting to think about the context of this, exactly what you're talking about, Mark, as really being kind of the primitive version of this, that, that there's so much still that has to be learned about all these things that go on around just the sequencing. That's true. Um, one of the one of the things, again, that we discovered in the process of working on the book is how little we actually know. I mean, I had had the impression that because, you know, we completed the Human Genome Project, this great undertaking, that we'd really kind of almost figured it all out. And the fact is that uh, scientists still don't know what most of our genes actually do. And the, I spoke before about the one point five percent of the genome that uh, contains recipes for proteins well we don't really understand what the other 98.5 percent of the genome does Um, for a long time they used to use this term called junk DNA Mm -hmm. which was sort of basically this assumption that since we didn't know what it did it must not do anything all that important and over the last few years scientists have been discovering that well that doesn't seem to be true. There are some important things that, that the other 98.5% of the genome does. Mark, finally start with you. What did it make you think about working on this story for all this time in terms of your own health, your own DNA, your own genetic makeup? Where, where did all this take you personally? Um, well, I, I don't know about Kathleen, but for, for me, um, it made me wonder how much I want to know. Um, the big thing about having uh, your sequence done and some people have had uh, their genome sequenced and the the prediction is that um, that at some point in the fairly near future possibly all babies at birth will have their Uh their uh, full genome sequenced well it's good to know certain things but it's also bad to know certain things for example what if you have a disease that's uh, that's in it's in your genome and it's going to uh, begin to assert itself when you're in middle age. There's no cure. And basically, you know that in middle age, you're going to start to lose you know, muscle uh, facility or, or you'll start to have kind of Alzheimer's-like symptoms. I mean, there are diseases like this. And some people would want to know that and make the most of the time they have before. Other people feel like I don't want to have this sword hanging over my head that's going to shape everything I do. So it basically the genome um, forces us to ask some very uncomfortable questions about the time we spend on Earth. And it kind of made me wonder about that. You know, I um, sitting at home, you know, chugging some beers, watching uh, football may not be the way I want to spend every Sunday, you know. <laughs> Kathleen, Not what, there's anything wrong. <laughs> Kathleen, what was your personal takeaway from this? 
Well, uh, that's interesting. I, no one ever asked us that question. I didn't uh, realize Mark felt that way because I feel kind of the opposite. I started out thinking there is no way I ever want to know any of that stuff. And as we've gone through it, I guess I've become so comfortable with the, with, with the idea of it that uh, I think if I had, I, I don't think I'd go out and do it just to do it, but I think if I had some illness that no one could figure out, I, I wouldn't hesitate. I'd get my genes sequenced. Mark Johnson, Kathleen Gallagher, their book, their story is One in a Billion, the story of Nick Volker and the dawn of genomic medicine. Mark, Kathleen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you.